Chapter Five of A Son of the Middle Border by Hamlin Garland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Last Threshing in the Coulee. Life on a Wisconsin farm, even for the women, had its compensations. There were times when the daily routine of lonely and monotonous housework gave place to an agreeable bustle, and human intercourse lightened the toil. In the midst of the slow progress of the fall's plowing, the gathering of the threshing crew was a most dramatic event to my mother, as to us, for it not only brought unwonted clamor, it fetched her brothers William and David and Frank, who owned and ran a threshing machine, and their coming gave the house an air of festivity, which offset the burden of extra work which fell upon us all. In those days the grain, after being brought in and stacked around the barn, was allowed to remain until October or November, when all the other work was finished. Of course some men got the machine earlier, for all could not thresh at the same time, and a good part of every man's fall activities consisted in changing works with his neighbors, thus laying up a stock of unpaid labor against the home job. Day after day, therefore, father or the hired man shouldered a fork and went to help thresh, and all through the autumn months the ceaseless ringing hum and the bow boom of the great balance wheels on the separator and the deep bass purr of its cylinder could be heard in every valley like the droning song of some sullen and gigantic autumnal insect i recall with especial clearness the events of that last threshing in the coulee i was eight my brother was six for days we had looked forward to the coming of the threshers, listening with the greatest eagerness to father's report of the crew. At last he said, Well, Bell, get ready. The machine will be here tomorrow. All day we hung on the gate, gazing down the road, watching, waiting for the crew, and even after supper, we stood at the windows, still hoping to hear the rattle of the ponderous separator. Father explained that the men usually worked all day at one farm and moved after dark, and we were just starting to climb the wooden hill when we heard a far-off, faint halloo. "'There they are!' shouted Father, catching up his old square tin lantern and hurriedly lighting the candle within it. "'That's Frank's voice!' The night air was sharp, and as we had taken off our boots, we could only stand at the window and watch father as he piloted the teamsters through the gate. The light threw fantastic shadows here and there, now lighting up a face, now bringing out the separator, which seemed a weary and sullen monster awaiting its den. The men's voices sounded loud in the still night, causing the roused turkeys in the oaks to peer about on their perches, uneasy silhouettes against the sky. We would gladly have stayed awake to greet our beloved uncles, but mother said, You must go to sleep in order to be up early in the morning, and reluctantly we turned away. Lying thus on our cot, under the sloping raftered roof, we could hear the squawk of the hens as father wrung their innocent necks, and the crash of the sweeps being unloaded sounded loud and clear and strange. We longed to be out there but at last the dance of lights and shadows on the plastered wall died away, and we fell into childish dreamless sleep. 
we were awakened at dawn by the ringing beat of the iron mauls as Frank and David drove the stakes to hold the power to the ground. The rattle of trace chains, the clash of iron rods, the clang of steel bars, intermixed with the laughter of the men, came sharply through the frosty air, and the smell of sizzling sausage from the kitchen warned us that our busy mother was hurrying the breakfast forward. Knowing that it was time to get up, although it was not yet light, I had a sense of being awakened into a romantic new world, a world of heroic action. As we stumbled down the stairs, we found the lamp-lit kitchen empty of the men. They had finished their coffee and were out in the stackyard, oiling the machine and hitching the horses to the power. Shivering, yet entranced by the beauty of the frosty dawn, we crept out to stand and watch the play. The frost lay white on every surface. The frozen ground rang like iron under the steel-shod feet of the horses, and the breath of the men rose up in little white puffs of steam. Uncle David, on the feeder stand, was impatiently awaiting the coming of the fifth team. The pitchers were climbing the stacks like blackbirds, and the straw stackers were scuffling about the stable door. Finally, just as the east began to bloom, and long streamers of red began to unroll along the vast gray dome of sky, Uncle Frank, the driver, lifted his voice in a Chippewa war-whoop. On a still morning like this, his signal could be heard for miles. Long-drawn and musical, it sped away over the fields, announcing to all the world that the McClintocks were ready for the day's race. Answers came back faintly from the frosty fields, where dim figures of laggard hands could be seen hurrying over the ploughed ground. The last team came clattering in and was hooked into its place. David called, All right! and the cylinder began to hum. In those days the machine was either a J.I. case or a buffalo pits, and was moved by five pairs of horses attached to a power staked to the ground, round which they traveled pulling at the ends of long levers or sweeps, and to me the force seemed tremendous. Tumbling rods with knuckle joints carried the motion to the cylinder, and the driver who stood upon a square platform above the huge greasy cogwheels, round which the horses moved, was a grand figure in my eyes. Driving, to us, looked like a pleasant job, but Uncle Frank thought it very tiresome and I can now see that it was. To stand on that small platform all through the long hours of a cold November day, when the cutting wind roared down the valley, sweeping the dust and leaves along the road, was work. Even I perceived that it was far pleasanter to sit on the south side of the stack and watch the horses go round. It was necessary that the driver should be a man of judgment, for the horses had to be kept at just the right speed and to do this he must gauge the motion of the cylinder by the pitch of its deep bass song. The three men in command of the machine were set apart as the threshers. William and David alternately fed or tended, that is, one of them fed the grain into the howling cylinder, while the other, oil can in hand, watched the sieves, felt of the pinions, and so kept the machine in good order. The feeder's position was the high place to which all boys aspired. 
and on this day I stood in silent admiration of Uncle David's easy, powerful attitudes as he caught each bundle in the crook of his arm and spread it out into a broad, smooth band of yellow straw on which the whirling teeth caught and tore with monstrous fury. He was the ideal man in my eyes, grander in some ways than my father, and to be able to stand where he stood was the highest honor in the world. It was all poetry for us, and we wished every day were threshing day. The wind blew cold, the clouds went flying across the bright blue sky, and the straw glistened in the sun. With jarring snarl, the circling zone of cogs dipped into the sturdy greasy wheels, and the single trees and pulley chains chirped clear and sweet as crickets. The dust flew, the whip cracked, and the men working swiftly to get the sheaves to the feeder or to take the straw away from the tail end of the machine were like warriors, urged to desperate action by battle cries. The stackers wallowing to their waists in the fluffy straw pile seemed gnomes acting for our amusement. The straw pile, what delight we had in that! What joy it was to go up to the top where the men were stationed, one behind the other, and to have them toss huge forkfuls of the light fragrant stalks upon us. Laughing to see us emerge from our golden cover, we were especially impressed by the bravery of Ed Green, who stood in the midst of the thick dust and flying chaff, close to the tail of the stacker. His teeth shone like a negro's out of his dust-blackened face, and his shirt was wet with sweat, but he motioned for more straw, and David, accepting the challenge, signaled for more speed. Frank swung his lash and yelled at the straining horses. The sleepy growl of the cylinder rose to a howl, and the wheat came pulsing out at the spout in such a stream that the carriers were forced to trot on their path to and from the granary in order to keep the grain from piling up around the measurer. There was a kind of splendid rivalry in this back-breaking toil, for each sack weighed ninety pounds. We got tired of wallowing in the straw at last, and went down to help Rover catch the rats, which were being uncovered by the pitchers as they reached the stack bottom. The horses, with their straining, outstretched necks, the loud and cheery shouts, the whistling of the driver, the roar and hum of the great wheel, the flourishing of the forks, the supple movement of brawny arms, the shouts of the men, all blended with the wild sound of the wind in the creaking branches of the oaks, forming a glorious poem in our unforgetting minds. At last the call for dinner sounded. The driver began to call, Whoa there, boys! Steady, Tom! And to hold his long whip before the eyes of the more spirited of the teams, in order to convince them that he really meant stop. The pitchers stuck their forks upright in the stack and leaped to the ground. Randall, the band-cutter, drew from his wrist the looped string of his big knife. The stackers slid down from the straw pile, and a race began among the teamsters to see whose span would be the first unhitched and at the watering trough. What joyous rivalry it seemed to us! Mother and Mrs. Randall, wife of our neighbor, who was changing works, stood ready to serve the food as soon as the men were seated. The table had been lengthened to its utmost, and pieced out with boards, 
and planks had been laid on stout wooden chairs at either side. The men came in with a rush and took seats wherever they could find them, and their attack on the boiled potatoes and chicken should have been appalling to the women, but it was not. They enjoyed seeing them eat. Ed Green was prodigious. One cut at a big potato, followed by two stabbing motions, and it was gone. Two bites laid a leg of chicken as bare as a slate pencil. To us, standing in the corner, waiting our turn, it seemed that every smitch of the dinner was in danger, for the others were not far behind Ed and Dan. At last even the gauntest of them filled up and left the room, and we were free to sit at the second table and eat, while the men rested outside. David and William, however, generally had a belt to sew or a bent tooth to take out of the concave. This seemed of grave dignity to us, and we respected their self-sacrificing labor. Nooning was brief. As soon as the horses had finished their oats, the roar and hum of the machine began again, and continued steadily all the afternoon, till by and by the sun grew big and red, the night began to fall, and the wind died out. This was the most impressive hour of a marvelous day. Through the falling dusk the machine boomed steadily with a new sound, a solemn roar rising at intervals to a rattling impatient yell as the cylinder ran momentarily empty. The men moved now in silence, looming dim and gigantic in the half-light. The straw-pile mountain high, the pitchers in the chaff, the feeder on his platform, and especially the driver on his power, seemed almost superhuman to my childish eyes. Gray dust covered the handsome face of David, changing it into something both sad and stern. But Frank's cheery voice rang out musically as he called to the weary horses, "'Come on, Tom! Up there, Dan!' The track in which they walked had been worn into two deep circles, and they all moved mechanically round and round, like parts of a machine, dull-eyed and covered with sweat. At last William raised the welcome cry, "'All done!' The men threw down their forks. Uncle Frank began to call in a gentle, soothing voice, "'Whoa, lads! Steady, boys! Whoa, there!' But the horses had been going so long and so steadily that they could not at once check their speed. They kept moving, though slowly, on and on, till their owners slid from the stacks and, seizing the ends of the sweeps, held them. Even then, after the power was still, the cylinder kept its hum till David, throwing a last sheaf into its open maw, choked it into silence. Now came the sound of dropping chains, the clang of iron rods, and the thud of hoofs, as the horses walked with laggard gait and weary downfalling heads to the barn. The men, more subdued than at dinner, washed with great care, and combed the chaff from their beards. The air was still and cool and the sky a deep cloudless blue, starred with faint fire. Supper, though quiet, was more dramatic than dinner had been. The table lighted with kerosene lamps, the clean white linen, the fragrant dishes, the women flying about with steaming platters, all seemed very cheery and very beautiful. And the men, who came into the light and warmth of the kitchen, with aching muscles and empty stomachs, seemed gentler and finer than at noon. They were nearly all from neighboring farms, and my mother treated even the few hired men like visitors, and the talk was all hearty and good-tempered, 
though a little subdued. One by one the men rose and slipped away, and father withdrew to milk the cows and bed down the horses, leaving the women and the youngsters to eat what was left and do up the dishes. After we had eaten our fill, Frank and I also went out to the barn, all wonderfully changed now to our minds by the great stack of straw, there to listen to David and father chatting as they rubbed their tired horses. The lantern threw a dim red light on the harness and on the rumps of the cattle, but left mysterious shadows in the corners. I could hear the mice rustling in the straw of the roof, and from the farther end of the dimly lighted shed came the regular strim-stram of the streams of milk falling into the bottom of a tin pail as the hired hand milked the big rowan cow. All this was very momentous to me as I sat on the oat-box, shivering in the cold air, listening with all my ears. And when we finally went toward the house, the stars were big and sparkling. The frost had already begun to glisten on the fences and well-curb, and high in the air, dark against the sky, the turkeys were roosting uneasily, as if disturbed by premonitions of approaching thanksgiving. Rover pattered along by my side on the crisp grass, and my brother clung to my hand. How bright and warm it was in the kitchen, with mother putting things to rights, while father and my uncles leaned their chairs against the wall and talked of the west and of moving. I can't get away till after New Year's, father said, but I'm going. I'll never put in another crop on these hills. With speechless content, I listened to Uncle William's stories of bears and Indians, and other episodes of frontier life, until at last we were ordered to bed and the glorious day was done. Oh, those blessed days, those entrancing nights! How fine they were then, and how mellow they are now! For the slow-paced years have dropped nearly fifty other golden mists upon that far-off valley. From this distance I cannot understand how my father brought himself to leave that lovely farm and those good and noble friends. End of chapter 5